0: You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praycc.org. I always think it's just so important to always just be reminded of who we are in Christ. And there's so many... uh, words in scripture that uh, reveal uh, that nature of who we really are in Christ. And I love a video that can kind of go through and just again remind you within a couple of minutes um, who we really are in Christ because there's so many things that come at us in life that oftentimes can really uh, cause us to lose focus uh, of who we really are uh, in Christ. And in case you haven't noticed, you know our society is growing more and more secular by the Even among Christians, it seems like many are becoming more and more conformed to the world than they are being conformed to Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the fastest growing segments of our population right now when it comes to religion are what they call the nuns, and not Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S nuns. And these are people who claim no religious affiliation uh, with any religion whatsoever. And they represent a, a growing segment. 23% of our population right now kind of identify themselves as nuns. Now that that uh, is equal to the number of people who claim to be evangelical Christians, which is 22.5%, and Catholics who make up 23%. And again, that really kind of puts a very big elephant, at least to me, in the room of the church. And I think it should force us to really kind of start asking some very serious questions. Questions like, if the message of Christianity is true... And if we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news ever given to mankind, why are so many people questioning it or rejecting it? Over the years, I found there generally five really major reasons why people have a problem with Christianity and ultimately reject the gospel message. This won't surprise many of you, but the number one objection that most people have to the Christian gospel and the church is the problem of evil and suffering. The other four uh, in order of importance are hypocrisy in the church, the conflict that many feel between science and scripture, politics and social issues in the church, and the number five reason that most people, you know, reject the Christian message and have trouble with the church is because of judgmental Christians. So this morning, I want to look at the one that seems to always top the list of reasons people struggle with Christianity and ultimately reject the gospel message, and that's the role of suffering and evil. There was a recent poll put out by uh, the Barner Research Association, and they asked a thousand people this question. They said, if you could ask God any one question and you knew that God would give you an answer, what question would you ask? By and far, the number one answer was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why do the innocent suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now let's be fair, everybody has to deal with this issue, the problem of evil and suffering. It's not just Christians, and it's not just Christianity. It doesn't matter what your philosophy or your worldview is. Suffering and evil, it knows no boundaries. And it doesn't matter what you believe. If something like physical or sexual abuse desertion, maybe a debilitating disease, or the loss of a loved one has devastated you, then the subject of evil and suffering, it's not just theoretical, it's not just uh, philosophical, it becomes deeply personal. So when it comes to the issue of evil and suffering, maybe the better question we need to ask ourselves is, which philosophy, which worldview Or what belief does the best job of really facing this problem and gives the best response? Now again, there's no easy answers to this question. There's a great deal about evil and suffering I don't even begin to understand. And there's nothing that I'm going to say this morning or really anybody can say anywhere at any time that's going to make you suddenly feel better about evil and suffering that takes place around us. So again, why is there pain? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering in in the world? Now this, again, it's a very critically important question because it touches the lives of every one of us in one way or another. It's not just a question or reality that can just be swept under the rug or ignored. This isn't merely a problem. It is the problem. It affects us all, some more deeply than others. And to be honest, the question really is more narrow than just why is there evil and suffering in the world. Here, I believe, is the real question people are asking and the real issue that people are struggling with. And that's this, if there is a God, and that God professes and reveals himself as good, then why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, let's be honest, we're not bothered when bad things happen to bad people or when we feel like someone gets what they rightly deserve. We don't struggle with that. We don't question that. Our problem is when babies die at birth, innocent people are murdered. Terminal disease strikes down people in the prime of their lives. Maybe young girls or women are being raped and sold into sexual slavery or defenseless people are physically abused, just to name a few. And it's in times like that we can't but help question God in saying, if God, if you indeed are good, why don't you do something about the evil and the suffering, especially in the lives of innocent good people? And clearly, we aren't the first people to ever ask that question, and we certainly are not going to be the last. There was a man who lived thousands of years ago, someone you may have never even heard of, who struggled with this very dilemma. His name was Asaph. And to deal with this question, he wrote a song about it. And that song's recorded in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, and it's number 73, and in this song, in this psalm, Asaph couldn't understand why God would allow people who love him, who obey Him, who serve him, who worship Him, to suffer, hurt, heartache, trouble, tribulation, pain, suffering and problems. And he was one of them. I want you to listen to these words. They're in Psalm 73, beginning with verse one. And he says, "Truly, God is good to Israel." to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives, their bodies so strong and healthy. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the most high even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Not much has changed, has it? We hear these words and every one of us, we can empathize, we can identify with everything Asaph is saying here. Asaph saw himself as someone who was playing by all the rules, striving to live a godly life, went to the temple faithfully, paid his tithes and offerings, tried to be a good neighbor. Didn't cheat on his business deals. Maybe he was a good dad a great husband. Was faithful in his marriage. Always striving to do the right thing. And yet he said he was troubled all day long. Every morning brought him pain. Now we don't know exactly what that pain, what that struggle, what those issues were. If it was physical disease, financial ruin, family problems. His thinking was basically, what is the use of living a godly, innocent life if God is not going to reward me for it? I might as well live like the wicked because they not only get away with it, but it seems they're actually rewarded for it. And then he finally just throws up his hands in, in verse 16, and he said, it's almost impossible to understand why the wicked prosper." And again, all of this goes back to the question that I posed at the beginning of this message. Why do bad things happen to good people, godly people, and why does it seem like the wicked prosper? So towards answering that question, again, no one can fully understand this. I can't do justice in explaining this fully and completely. You're not gonna walk out of here satisfied with everything I have to say this morning. But I wanna invite us to consider at least three things as we weigh this issue. First, we gotta understand the dynamic of good and evil. Let me just get something out of the way uh, immediately. One approach to the problem of evil is simply to minimize it or just deny that it exists altogether. For example, there are some forms of Eastern religion that say evil is just an illusion. So you take Hinduism, for example. Now according to Hindu thought, once a person achieves the the right state of mystical consciousness, evil is absent. And there are religious groups like Christian Science, there are new age spiritualities out there that embrace a similar view. Now the problem with this viewpoint is anyone who has ever experienced an unexplained tragedy or suffering in their life simply deep down cannot buy the thought that this evil that they've experienced, this suffering that they're going through is nothing more than an illusion or just a figment of their imagination. To them, the evil is very real. The suffering is deep. It is personal. It's painful. And it often just leads to the greater problem. And that is, if you can't get rid of evil, if you can't explain it away, then maybe the next step just seems to kind of get rid of or explain away God. In other words, if there is a God, he is most certainly not good. The argument was made a long time ago by the Greek philosopher Epicurus when he said this. He said, Either God wants to abolish evil and he can't, or he can but he doesn't want to, or he can't and doesn't want to. If he wants to but he can't, he's impotent. If he can but doesn't want to, he's wicked. If he is good, he would. If he could, he should. The fact that he doesn't means he can't or he won't. In that case, God doesn't exist. For a lot of people, that explanation is a slam dunk. It's game over. It's problem solved. As simply as I can, let me just lay out the problem with this kind of view. People who want to eliminate God or eliminate a good God essentially kind of run into a brick wall for this one reason. Once you admit the existence of evil, you must also admit the existence of good. Now, we would describe evil uh, as the negative of things that are good. So we may be able to describe someone as immoral, unjust, unfair, dishonest, and we're able to only make those distinctions because there exists some standard or some definition of what moral, just, fair, and honest is. Evil is fundamentally a departure from goodness. Evil cannot exist without the good it opposes. It's not so much the removal of good as it really is the corruption of good. As metal does not need rust, but rust needs metal, so good doesn't need evil, but evil needs good. Now, simply put, we acknowledge from our own personal experiences And we see that there's not only evil in the world, but there is also good in the world. And we see and experience both evil and good in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And because of that experience, we're able to distinguish between both good and evil and, and, and acknowledge that they both exist. One of my favorite Christian apologetics teacher is the late Ravi Zacharias, And one time he was speaking at the University of of Nottingham in England. And whenever he would finish his lectures, he would always open the floor uh, so that people in attendance could ask him uh, questions, uh, particularly when he talked about the role of evil and suffering in the world. On this particular night there in England, one of the students kind of stood up and made this statement to Ravi Zacharias. And he said, there cannot possibly be a God with all the evil and suffering that exists in this world. Zacharias responded by saying, when you say there is such a thing as evil, are you not assuming there is also such a thing as good? And the student replied, of course. And Ravi continued, he said, when you accept the existence of goodness, are you not also assuming that there has to be a moral law that gives us the basis of what to distinguish between what is good and what is evil? And the student said, Well, I suppose so. And then Ravi dropped the hammer. He said, I agree there must be a moral law, a standard by which we determine what is good and what is evil. But when you admit to a moral law, you also agree that there must be a moral lawgiver. If there is no moral lawgiver, there is no moral law. If there is no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. There is a moral lawgiver, but that's exactly who you are trying to disprove. So I'm not sure what your question is is in other words what Ravi is saying there is he's saying when you throw out the idea of God you throw out the meaning of good and evil you throw out the uh, meaning of, of suffering in an atheistic world there can actually be no good or evil because there's no absolute standard by which to judge anything as being good or evil right or wrong So the problem of evil is rather being an argument against the existence of God, it actually becomes an argument for the existence of God, which leads to the second part of this issue, and that is we must realize and recognize the dilemma of good and evil. When you introduce God, that doesn't solve the problem, it merely exposes the problem. You see, something bothered Asaph that also bothers us. And it goes back to the very first thing that Asaph said about God. And he says there in verse one, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And Asaph acknowledges a very basic fundamental truth about God is that he is good and that he is good to those who are pure in heart, those who are innocent, those that are good. Then he goes on to say this in verse 28, but as for me, how good it is to be near God, I made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Now, Asaph there, he refers to God as the sovereign Lord. Now, that title, sovereign Lord, it simply means the God who is in control of everything, By Asaph using that very specific title, he's acknowledging there that God could forbid trouble from ever coming to any of us if he ever chose to. He's saying if God is sovereign, if God is indeed in control of all things, that means nothing happens to us unless God either causes it or he allows it. Now we know that God keeps bad things from happening to us. He does it all the time and he does it all throughout scripture. There was a time where he kept the lions from eating Daniel. He kept the fire from burning Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. He kept Noah and his family safe in the ark while the rest of the world around them perished. He kept the giant Goliath from killing David. So we know, From our own experience, we know from scripture that God can keep bad things from happening to us, but he doesn't always do it. So that raises the question. If God can keep some bad things from happening to any good person, why doesn't God keep all bad things from happening to every good person? If God could keep something bad from happening to me any of the time, why doesn't God keep bad things from happening to me all the time? Now, you're not going to like the next answer, but I'm here to tell you it's an honest one. From one end of the Bible to the other, God never, ever fully explains Why he allows evil and suffering, regardless of how good or wicked the person may be. And the whole book of Job was a testament to this fact. You may remember, if you're familiar with the story of Job, right there in the opening chapters, chapter one, Job is described by God as a righteous man of complete integrity. That Job was a man who feared God and he shunned evil. And yet you look at what God allowed to happen in Job's life. He allowed his house, his livestock, his servants, all of his children to be wiped out. And eventually, even Job's own body to suffer horrible boils from head to toe. Job, and you may remember Job's three friends all question, why would a righteous, good God allow people to suffer? then basically you have chapters 3 through 37. And you read of the questions, of the accusations that Job and these three friends, these charges they made against God for what he allowed to come upon Job. And then that patient God, he waits until chapter 38 and then God finally responds but he responds in in a way that that just kind of takes you uh, off your footing. God doesn't answer any questions. He responds to Job and his three friends' questions with more questions. I want to read just one chapter. Now, to be fair, we need to hear these same questions. We need to hear these same verses as if they were being asked of us. Beginning in there in verse one, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and he said, who is this that questions my wisdom with such arrogant words or ignorant words? He says, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundation? Who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries? As it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates limiting its shores. I said this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Pam, have have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Steve, have you made the daylight spread to the ends of the earth? To bring an end to the night's wickedness, as light approaches, the Earth takes shape like clay, pressed beneath a seal. It's, in, it's robed in brilliant color. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that raised it in violence. Bobby, have you ever explored the springs from which the sea come? Have you explored their depths? Janie, do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Denny, where does light come from? And where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all of this, for you were born before it was all created, and so you are very experienced. Christy, have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I've reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where, there, where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Does the rain have a father who gives birth to the dew? Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? From the water turns to ice as hard as rock, and the surface of water freezes. Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of the Pleiades or loosening the cords of Iran? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with their cubs across the heavens? James, do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Colleen, who gives instruction to the heart and instructs to the mind, instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil is hardened into clods? Chris, can you stalk prey for a lioness and satisfy the young lion's appetite as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when their young cry out to God and wander about in hunger? Now, I took time to read through this because I want you to absorb. I want you to feel what Job felt as God began his response to Job's questioning of why do you allow the righteous to suffer? Why do you let bad things happen to good people? This was God's response to Job. Now, why does God respond to Job in this way? Job simply wants God to explain why he allowed all of this evil, this suffering, and this destruction to come upon him, to come upon his household. And God responds by simply asking Job question after question after question. Why? God's reply to Job is the same to us. If you are ever to understand the answers as to why the righteous suffer, then you've got to first understand the basics. If you can explain the basics of creation and the natural miracles, then you are ready for the deeper knowledge of why the righteous suffer. And so God basically says to Job, I suppose you were there when I created the world, weren't you? Tell me, Job. Because you know, because you were obviously there, you were a part of that. How do I keep the stars in place, Job? Have you ever considered the ostrich, he says to Job, in another place? Have you ever seen such a foolish bird? It lays its eggs in the sand and then abandons them. I made them, Job, to do that. But now, Job, can you tell me why? Can you tell me how? Can you explain a rainbow, Job? Can you explain the frost, the dew, the wind, the snow? I'm sure you know how plants grow. And this is God's statement. This is his response to Job. And it's his response to us. God's saying, if you want to understand the deeper things of why the righteous suffer, why evil and suffering exist, He says, then we gotta start with the ABCs. Let's start with the easy stuff first. Let's cover how the natural world works first. And once you understand the simplicity of all of that, Job, then we can move on to the more difficult concepts of why the righteous suffer, why evil exists. Oh, you don't know? Oh, I I thought you knew. I thought you had a brain that said, God, if you'll just tell me, I'll understand. If you can't understand, God basically says to Job, if you cannot understand how this natural universe works, my dear friend, Job, how can I ever explain to you how I work? Or as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse 12, he said, if you can't understand when I tell you of earthly things, how will you understand if I tell you of heavenly things? In other words, God is saying to Job, and he's saying to us, if you can't understand how a hippo works, how can I ever explain to you the workings of the moral world? and the higher order of things in the spirit. And this is where Job finds himself with God. He tries to understand the complexity of suffering and evil without first understanding the elementary issues of creation. That's why God peppered him with all of those questions. Job tried to understand the complexity of suffering and, while, and why God allowed it without first acquiring the prerequisite understanding of the created order and the process of the universe. Job tried to skip knowledge that was necessary to understand the questions he was asking for. And many times we're guilty of the same things. We want all the easy answers to all the difficult questions without having to do much thinking. We don't want to study God's word. We don't want to seek his knowledge. But whenever we have questions, we suddenly just expect that God is going to impart that knowledge without any effort or minimal effort on our part. And I know this does not answer the question of why the righteous suffer, but I think it forcefully speaks to it. Gregory Boyd in his book, Is God to Blame, tackles this whole issue of the role and purpose of evil in our lives, and he comes to the same conclusion that Job came to, and it is this. There can be no final explanation to this question. Boyd argues the free will of human and angels, the rippling effects our good and bad choices have that affect our lives and the lives of other people, the vastness and complexity of creation The ensuing chaos and rebellion against God introduced into this world back in the Garden of Eden only heightened its complexity. The spiritual warfare of both good and evil forces upon this earth and in the heavens, all of this, Boyd argues, has something to do, plays a role in the evil and suffering that's happening in our world. In other words, he's saying it's not just one thing. It's a myriad of many complex and vastly complicated issues and forces actively at work in the world today. There are evil forces in our world today, just as there were in Job's day that works to combat the godly, angelic forces of good and seeks to thwart God's goodness and righteousness. We need to understand that the cosmos, this world, it is far more complicated and combative than either Job, his three friends had assumed and more complex than any of us ever understand. We are living in a spiritual war zone. And unfortunately, along the way, there are going to be many difficulties, sufferings, injustices, and casualties. Boyd writes in his book, and he says, The fact that neither Job nor his friends are told about the Satan who began the whole mess reinforces the point. If you go back and, and read the book of Job, Job and his friends, they are not privy to the conversation that took place between God and Satan in chapters 1 and 2. They don't know of that until the end of the story. Job and his three friends are completely unaware of the conversation that took place between God and Satan in the first two chapters. After the first two chapters, the Satan isn't mentioned again. Isn't that interesting? The main characters of this epic poem never learn what we the reader know all along. And this is precisely the point of the book of Job. We don't know and we can't know why particular harmful events unfold exactly as they do. What we can know, however, is why we can't know. And it's not because God's plan or character is mysterious, but because we are finite humans in an incomprehensibly vast creation that is affected by the forces of chaos. The mystery of the particularity of evil, which is no different than the mystery of the particularity of everything. And I underline this, this is so key is located in the mystery of creation, not in the mystery of God. And given this mystery, we must refrain from blaming each other or blaming God when misfortunes arise. Rather, following the example of Jesus, we must simply ask, what can we do in response to the evil we encounter? If we truly understand anything about God, let it be this. His depth of love goes for us. The depths of of his love for us go beyond our wildest dreams. His love for you and for me is always at its fullest, always at its maximum, and it defies human logic and sensibilities. We must all expect and be prepared for confusing experiences along the way. However difficult life is in the war zone, and it is, and for some, it is unthinkably difficult. It will be worth it for those whose faith and trust ultimately rest in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it will be more than worth it. Romans 8.18 8, says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And Paul's saying there's no comparison between the suffering of this world and the eternal glory that awaits those who are Christ. In light of the unthinkable horror that some people have undergone or are undergoing, heaven has got to be one unfathomably wonderful, awesome place. The most fundamental and profound hope the Bible gives us is not that everything now perfectly follows God's will and plan for our lives and for this world, but that someday, there is a day coming where God's purposes will be fully, completely done upon this earth as they are in heaven. And until that time comes, we need to remind ourselves of this promise that will help us cope with the evil, the suffering, and the tears and the ambiguous, war-torn, vastly complex world we now inhabit. Any other approach, I believe, is foolhardy. Amen? I'm going to pick it up here next week uh, and really kind of start trying to talk about the goodness of God. What does that look like? How does God uh, reveal his goodness to us, especially in the midst of of evil and suffering? So this is going to be a message that's probably going to unfold over uh, the next couple of weeks. Let's just go ahead and stand together this morning. Father, again, we just thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your word and God, your word tells us so much. It reveals so much to us. If we would only have ears to hear, eyes to see. So I pray, I pray this morning, Father, that you would give each one of us here ears to hear. Not, not physical ears, but spiritual ears. That you would give us spiritual ears to hear what the spirit of the Lord is saying that you would give us not just physical eyes to see, but you would give us spiritual eyes that we can see what the Spirit of the Lord is doing. So Father, this morning we just ask, Lord, for your presence. We thank you that you are a good God, that you are a compassionate God, that you are a merciful God, that you exist And that you exist even in the presence of evil and suffering. Not to be overwhelmed by them, not to be outdone by them. But that God, your promises, Lord, is that you will take all of that and you will cause it to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So, Lord, in the midst of a world in the midst of lives that are suffering from evil, that are suffering from the works of the enemy. Father, may we not ask why, but Lord, the more important question, where do we go from here? What is your plan going forward in the midst of this? God, knowing that again, you cause it all, And you're committed to working it all together for good. So God, we just pray, Lord, for just a patient heart. We pray for just a steadfastness in the midst of what we're going through. That God, having stood, we will continue to stand. That God, we will continue to look to you and trust you. That God, you are faithful. And God, we thank you, Lord, that Your word, again, just speaks to us. God, I pray, Lord, that your word would just continue to speak even louder to us, Lord. That you would lead us and guide us to those places in your word, God, where you want to reveal yourself to us. And I pray, especially for those this morning, Father, that have been touched by great evil and suffering in their lives this morning. Father, I pray again that they would just sense your presence with them in a very powerful way. That God, in the midst of this evil and suffering, it wouldn't be used as a reason to push you away or to deny your existence, but that God, in the midst of this evil and suffering, it would be for every motivation to draw you nearer, to know you more deeply in the midst of what they're going through. We thank you, God, that you do not abandon us. You do not forsake us. You don't leave us. No matter what's happening in our lives, you are always there. And you are always committed to doing what's best for us. And so, Father, this morning, we just look to you. We trust you. And Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would continue to walk with us. Despite our questions, despite our doubts, our confusion, God, that you would just continue to walk with us. That you would lead us and guide us, Lord, to just greater places of your presence, of your goodness, of your mercy, of your love. And we just again thank you, Father. That you who have begun a good work in us, that you are faithful to commit to complete that. And we just again thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We just you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.